Good afternoon, uh, my dear listeners, and those of you who are interested in psychoanalytic psychotherapy or psychoanalysis for practice or for um, uh, being a patient, uh, I am actually re-recording this lecture about the repetition compulsion and many apologies for the confusion that has happened in these 10. I, I did a series of podcasts on depth psychotherapy, oh, maybe a year ago. Now I'm doing the top 10 hits, uh, meaning in my view, after 40 years of practice, what the top 10 ideas are from the entire psychoanalytic opus. And I fear I've already been rather repetitive. So this set begins with an introduction and then uh, the first one is about the unconscious. Uh, the second one, well, really the four foundational themes of psychoanalysis are the unconscious, the repetition compulsion, transference, and dreams and other signifiers of the unconscious. I somehow have lost the second one on the repetition compulsion. So that's what this one is about, and I'm going to say it several times in case I have to search through this again. So this is number three of the top ten ideas of psychoanalysis, focusing on the repetition compulsion. And again, many apologies. So quick review, not of everything, but just of the first four of the top ten. The four are confusing. This is something that Freud wrote about. Jacques Lacan also elaborated upon in his book, um, perfectly named, The Four Fundamental Concepts of Psychoanalysis. What's immediately confusing about these four concepts is there's really one with three subheadings, but don't blame me, it wasn't my fault. I'm just passing on what Freud wrote about and then Lacan elaborated upon. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the unconscious is really the sine qua non of all of psychoanalysis. It's one way to differentiate it from cognitive behavioral approaches, behavioral psychology, any other kind of uh, psychotherapy, is that it has to do with the unconscious broadly defined, as I indicate in the earlier lecture of this top 10 about the unconscious, um, I consider it on a pretty broad spectrum uh, beginning with things we just don't really want to pay attention to, but we know things we're disavowing or denying, secrets we barely tell ourselves, or secrets we do hold but we don't tell anybody else. That would kind of be on the far conscious end of the unconscious. And then when you go down the continuum, you get to completely unconscious uh, phenomena, which... Um, Freud thought the ego id and the superego could all be partially in the unconscious. Uh, Ronald Fairburn called them dynamic structures, which I will be getting into those later in a different podcast. But today, <clears throat> and apologies also about my problematic throat today, um, is all about this idea of the repetition compulsion. Um, actually continuing my introduction. So you have the unconscious as a broad idea, and then the three subheadings, repetition, compulsion, I'm sorry, repetition, compulsion, transference, 
dreams and other indicators of the unconscious. Uh, I have already recorded the one on dreams and the one on transference. So this one is about the repetition compulsion. Now, that's Freud's original phrase. Um, it's not the best word, a set of words in my view. In my own lecturing and writing, I prefer to use <clears throat> psychocognitive behavioral patterns, which I guess you could say is really worse than repetition compulsion. You all know what it is that I'm talking about. Um, you know people or you find in yourself patterns of behavior, patterns in relationships, uh, patterns of emotion, patterns of mood that are recurrent and, and repetitive. <clears throat> so um, I remember 40 years ago when I was doing a pre-doctoral internship, one of the first patients I ever had was a woman. I really want to refund her money one of these days, um, who was in her fourth abusive relationship where she Okay, I'm really uh, struggling with the recording here. I think I'm back on. Uh, I was talking about that patient from many, many years ago who uh, was on her fourth physically abusive relationship. I knew enough to know that um, there was no way to statistically she could have selected four sequential men that abused her. Really a prime example of the repetition compulsion or of a psychocognitive, emotional, behavioral, uh, recurring pattern because something about uh, her early relationship with her father I really don't recall now or could be abandonment by another parental figure uh, caused her well the the typical pattern with these types of patients is that they're actually attracted to highly highly insecure men who tend to become jealous uh, and extremely possessive and therefore physically abusive. So what works for them on one level is the attraction to the highly insecure man that they can feel a deep bond with, but the unfortunate currency that they pay for that is um, a propensity toward violence, at least sometimes. So there's a kind of scary, dramatic example of a repetition compulsion. Uh, I want to take a quick side trip and talk about the idea of perspectivism, uh, which is the way I believe that mental phenomena have to be viewed, that um, a patient walks into your consulting room for the first time or the 500th time, and the amount of information that is creating their subjective experience is infinite, literally infinite. So you have to break it down in some way. Um, you could look at it, them from sociological perspectives. You could look at them from economic perspectives. Um, you could look at it exclusively through the early childhood experience or equally exclusively through just what their immediate life situation is. Uh, the point of psychoanalysis is to highlight the subjective experience of the patient. So that means what they report, how they present, how they appear, what kind of mood and emotion um, they show, what kind of behaviors they show. So each session is kind of a 
behavioral sample, if you will, and that's the perspective of psychoanalysis. And I say that in terms of the repetition compulsion because you will find, whether you're a patient or whether you're a psychotherapist, that patients do present repetitive themes. They might have a streak of admiration of you. They might have a streak of feeling persecuted by you. They might tell you that they're afraid you feel uh, bored by them. These would be examples of the repetition appearing in the transference. Um, the repetition often appears in relationships. They tend to be the persecutors. They tend to be the persecuted ones. They tend to be the dominant railroaders. They tend to be the followers. A lot of times you'll see it in work behaviors. They tend to underwork or overwork. This is not that hard of a concept, folks. Um, and the reason why it's one of the top four, I would say, or one of the four uh, legs holding up the table of psychoanalysis is because it's so ubiquitous. I'm sure you see it in yourself. I'm sure you see it in your friends. Um, I know Robert Stolero, who is a contemporary intersubjective theorist. He and uh, Jessica Benjamin actually created the phrase intersubjectivity theory. Uh, he talks about this in terms of recurring intersubjective patterns. It's all the same basic idea. As I've said many times, there's a ton of redundancy in psychoanalysis. Think about when you're working with patients, when you're looking at yourself, what are your repetitive themes? What are the ways that you keep doing over and over um, uh, behaviors, thought patterns, um, relational patterns, and so on? Um, I really think it's a way of structuring our world and Briefly getting back to perspectivism, if you look at this from a neurophysiological point of view, I'm sure that you would find there's also a neurophysiology to um, these types of patterns, either uh, actual structural changes in the brain or neuronal circuits that get well worn. So I'm just about to give you some examples, but before I do, I actually want to return to Freud and give you a quote from his 19... 14 uh, paper. Um, I don't actually have the title in front of me. I think it's um, uh, has the word repetition in it. Remembering repetition of um, something like that. Uh, 1914 though and he is in this paper writing about uh, remembering, repeating, something like that. Writing about the repetition compulsion. And you'll notice here how this slides a bit into the transference. Sorry about that, but that is also just the nature of the game in this field. Uh, but he writes how patients have, quote, forgotten and repressed, unquote, not as a memory, but, quote, as an action, period, unquote. So what he's talking about here is the repetition compulsion is a memory of a situation or theme or a trend that is repressed not as I remember my father repeatedly criticizing me and abusing me, but it's remembered as an action. And here he ties in the transference and the repetition compulsion when he writes, quote, 
The repetition is a transference of the forgotten past, not only onto the doctor, but also onto all the other aspects of the current situation, period, unquote. For those of you with OCD, it's on page 151 of the 1991 Standard Edition. I think I might want to read that again because uh, there, there's so much power in this phraseology. Quote, the repetition is a transference. So it's really meaning the repetition compulsion, or as I would say, the psychocognitive, emotional, behavioral, repetitive pattern is a transference of the forgotten past, not only onto the doctor, but also onto other aspects of the current situation, unquote. Now, what's crucial about this crossover between the transference and the repetition compulsion is invariably, if you see a patient frequently enough, um, or you see them long enough, you will see uh, the repetition of patterns in their life enter the relationship with you. And as I indicated in the lecture specifically devoted to transference, this can be some of the most powerful transformative work because uh, that is interpreting the transference, confronting the patients with the transference when it occurs, because you are able to chase, elucidate the um, repetitive pattern as it's occurring in the here and now between you and uh, the patient. Um, which And it's because it's in the here and now and because it's between you and them, it can often be the most powerful. I'm quite sure I did not see the woman who was in four successive abusive relationships long enough for me to identify this in the transference, nor do I think I knew enough about what I was doing back then, but I'm sure if I had seen her long enough, there would have been hints of her um, setting up a way for me to be critical or abusive, inviting me to feel that way. It can be sometimes very subtle, but again, that is one of the most powerful ways to uncover and alter the repetition compulsion. Now, since I think I've made the idea pretty clear, I'm going to devote the rest of this lecture to a number of immediate clinical examples. And I'll start with my, of course, my favorite topic, and that would be yours truly, me. Um, I think I've made com considerable dents in this, but I would say a, a major theme of my life has been compulsive overwork as a way to compensate for early childhood feelings of inadequacy. So I had a very distant uh, workaholic father, so that's gotta be part of the creation of the pattern for sure. Um, also very um, self-absorbed, narcissistic, anxious mother. May the gods forgive her. She did not mean me ill, but I have some very clear memories of after a lot of darkness and loneliness and anxiety, uh, noticing that I could make her laugh, that was at about age four. And then I also remember she admired um, uh, hard workers. And I would say this got translated as a way for me to repeat in relationships, in life, a way of achieving adequacy 
uh, a very well-worn story of mine is <clears throat> after being this kind of skinny, sickly second grader. Uh, when I was in my early 30s and my psychology practice was basically full, knock on wood, I felt like I was experiencing the opposite of that frightened, skinny second grader. So that set up a pattern lasting many years of working way too many hours, dictating over the weekends, not doing only psychotherapy work, doing also um, forensic psychology work. And just analyzing this one behavior gives you an appreciation of the complexity of the whole topic of psychoanalysis, because on one level, we could talk about this as simply being a defense mechanism, which is what the paid behavior was, but it also is a psychocognitive behavioral uh, emotional pattern in that back in the day when the workaholicism was at its height, I would experience feelings of inadequacy that would then be addressed by my rushing home and dictating a report or um, uh, uh, arranging for a new patient to be seen in the coming week, doing something that's quote-unquote productive. And now I briefly return to perspectivism just because, of course, this is a pattern that American culture in particular really reinforces. So um, I don't want to go on too much about myself. So I'm sure you get the idea and breaking it up, which happens with all repetition compulsions, pretty much always requires facing some kind of discomfort. Uh, and you really have to face into it. When I have an unstructured day like I'm having right now today, um, I often have to revisit feelings of sadness and inadequacy uh, in the way of encouragement. I'll tell you that gets less and less the more you face into it, but reversing any repetition compulsion is going to require facing into the pain. In the case of one of my first patients, the woman with the four abusive men, um, uh, had I had a chance to redo that work with her, it would be really about facing the discomfort of not having such an insecure man and not needing the type of clinging and intensity that can lead to pathological jealousy and sometimes uh, domestic violence. Um, this is why, and this has also happened to me many times, you have a woman or male patient like that that are beginning to make a change and they get into a relationship that is more involves more reciprocity and mutual care and love, that it actually feels uncomfortable for them. They're not used to that degree of consenting adulthood. Uh, they're not used to that degree of risk, if you will. This person's really a grown-up that can leave me. Um, they may not really even be used to feeling love. <clears throat> and now in my typical loose association way, I want to uh, deviate a bit here and talk about Freud and Fairbairn's different ideas about what causes repetitive com compulsion. Freud's thought was that it's a situation where you cannot master it, so you get stuck there. You get fixated at that time, and we'd say, using the example of me as a skinny second grader, it would be um, me on one level not progressing past that discomfort and leaping over it through using uh, compulsive overwork as a, uh, as a 
compensatory strategy. So Freud thought it was like a stuck place. I much prefer Fairburn's explanation, which is that it's not so much about being stuck as it was what characterized your most comfortable uh, home life, uh, early experience. This gets very complicated and I don't really want it to, but suffice to say that my early childhood experience was involving my feeling that inadequacy. And that's what the early childhood environment was like to me. And on some level, that's what felt like home to me. And so Fairbairn's point, not about mastery, it's more that you don't want to give up your unconscious internal home. So you're kind of destined to repeat it until, and this is one of Michael Ballant's phrase, you either get in a good relationship or you get in a good psychotherapeutic process. Then his phrase was regression for the sake of progression, that you go back to the place where the propensity to be attracted to abusive men got started. You hang there with the patient, have them face the uncomfortable emotions of giving up their home experience, the experience that, here's a better way to think about it, that they're just so comfortable with, and thereby help them transition into a more mature, less self-destructive kind of behavior. So that was the side point into causation of repetition compulsion, according to Freud and according to Fairbairn. Um, let me give you an example just from yesterday. Now I'm returning to just some clinical examples. A very beloved um, lawyer patient of mine who is uh, basically what's happened, and like all my male patients, I will call him Joe, is uh, started his own law firm. It's become fairly successful. He's in his late 50s. And now that he has, I don't know, eight or 10 attorneys working for him, He's basically assumed the position of managing partner, which he hates. So he came in to see me around two years ago. Actually, I'd seen him and his wife about 20 years ago, um, complaining of my life is dull. I feel depressed. And as I got to know him better this time around, he is doing really the work of an MBA without MBA training. He's tracking uh, expenses and income sources, um, overhead, uh, human resources, all things, not that any of those are not inherently interesting, but none of those are interesting to him. And where the repetition compulsion becomes so relevant here is he is seeking security. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, he and I are kind of stuck on that in the work. We just talked about it yesterday because he thinks the security is about financial uh, standing. He has enough money for probably four more lifetimes. It has nothing to do with that. And I would say one of the most significant breakthroughs and a rare opportunity for me to use one of Lacan's idea is um, way back, um, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, <clears throat> we're talking about how neglected he felt when his younger brother was born, how narcissistic and self-absorbed his mother was, 
and his his member his mother uh his father was just sort of an averagely successful man his mother really admired wealth and had this kind of pat phrase that now there's a wealthy man and you'd never know it <clears throat> so where i had the opportunity um to interpret to him in this Lacanian way, as Jacques Lacan said, what we identify with as children is not, it's not that we want to be like our mothers, but we want to be the object of our mother's or caregiver's desire. So a very meaningful set of sessions between me and this particular Joe was around, whoa, do you see how you're, you're organized around being this highly successful man <clears throat> but you would never know it. And in fact, there's not many accoutrements of wealth around this guy. There's a couple of, couple of them. It's more that he wants to inwardly feel that. And he has a literal number in mind, like a dollar figure in terms of passive income that he believes would uh, help him feel the sense of security. So the repetition compulsion in this guy's case is, oh my God, he makes my workaholism seem like a uh, a leisure case. Um, literally works seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, uh, has very little time for recreation, really has no friends. And the darkness that we need to face together is about not being the object of anybody's desire, um, being okay with who he is as a person, letting go this of this massive repetitive, and it is cognitive, it is behavioral, it is emotional, because he feels so insecure when he's not doing the workaholic thing. You can see why this guy so appeals to me, because he's like my brother in many ways. He's like a worse example of me. I feel like I can really understand him. And where there's resistance is he... He's, it's, and I've also used this analogy with him lately, that it's like, it's very much like an addiction that he believes when he gets to X amount of passive income, he's going to achieve the feeling of security. And the goal, and this is a bit Buddhist and Taoist here, is to get him into the here and now with that, <clears throat> why is he not enjoying what he has now? He's forever leaving the moment. Um... So that is my work with that particular Joe. Another repetition, and this will probably be a final one of the day, is a woman who I will call, like all women, Jane. Um, she um, is super enmeshed with her family of origin. <clears throat> and her reason for coming in for help is she's married to a guy she's kind of ambivalent about. They just had their second child. Um, she spends most of her time with her older brother um, and they live across the street from their parents. Her brother lives down the same street and she's having a lot of conflicts with the husband and I can see it coming with the children now because of the fact that her repetition compulsion is to kind of de facto be involved in a steady romantic relationship a marriage with a second child that would you would think would be pulling her into Lion King 
um, meaning, you know, life moves on and the kids develop their own lives and then the grandchildren come. And instead, <clears throat> she's clinging to almost for dear, dear life in a deeply uh, dependent way on her parents, even though she's now in her young 40s. The, the resistance, the discomfort that's going to be important for her to face is the pain of separation, the fact of her own insecurity, the remarkable neglect she shows toward her husband and her children, which will eventually come back to haunt her. You know, something Kohut and I think Carl Rogers also said is it's very important to remember that all of our patients, no matter how self-destructive or seemingly crazy their behaviors are, they're doing things for very good reasons. So I would say this young woman, Jill, Jane, <clears throat> is just living out a place that she got stuck, living out a pattern that felt the most stable and comfortable to her. And something that differentiates her from some of the other patients I've talked about is a lot of neglect from father. Father was a huge emotional figure to the family. All he ever did was work and uh, paid little attention to Jane or her siblings. So one of the many things we've talked about is uh, the way that the close relationship with her older brother is a mirror of her relationship with her father with the need she never got from her father. And a lot of the work is nudging her toward not only interpreting and confronting the repetition compulsion, but really helping her to uh, face these various categories of discomfort from um, the terrible sense of aloneness and abandonment she felt as a child to the perverse guilt that she feels over the it kind of is perverse. It's not sexual, but her closest relationship is really her brother, who's in his young 50s. And obviously, uh, kind of technically in terms of the rules of the universe, uh, her closest relationships should be her husband and her two children. Uh, and she is able to feel guilt about that. Another pain is that there's uh, the brewing storm of conflicts developing with her husband who could leave her. And he sounds like a bit of a masochistic fellow, if well, really more than a bit. And I can see trouble down the road if she's not able to break out of this own, her own compulsive repetitive pattern um, of maybe losing that relationship, being alienated from her children and more. <clears throat> well, I apologize again about my voice and this is now the end of lecture three of the top 10 ideas in psychoanalysis. I hope that I have not only introduced it in terms of the four legs holding up the psychoanalytic project with the idea of the unconscious being the most important, but really given you multiple examples of what the repetition compulsion means, how Freud and Fairburn conceptualized it, the idea of people do it for good reasons, it's a way that they organize their lives, and it's always a way of preventing some other kind of pain. And a big part of what the psychoanalytic relationship is about is to create a metaphorical holding of the patient so that they can face the pain 
give up the repetition compulsion and resume normal growth and development. Thank you so much for your attention. I look forward to speaking to you again when I pick up with number five, since I already did number four. Okay, farewell.